to uh, Revelation 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8 for our scripture reading this morning. I'll give you a moment to get there here and at home if you're watching virtually. The word of the Lord reads, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the thing that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Good morning. Good to worship with you all this morning. If we haven't met, uh, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. We are starting a new teaching series today in the book of Revelation. This series should take us into the middle of the summer months. We won't do the whole book, just the first several chapters. So let me take a few moments to lay out why we're doing that. Revelation paints a picture of a cosmic war between good and evil that takes place primarily on Earth. Or maybe to be a little bit more accurate, it's a cosmic war that takes place between God and evil. Between God and those who are loyal to him and those who oppose him in whatever way that they can. And in telling us about this war, Revelation gives us a glimpse into how the supernatural and the natural worlds intersect. How the seen and unseen persons in the kingdom of evil collide with the seen and the unseen persons of the kingdom of God. Now, we just need to acknowledge from the outset that this book can be challenging for moderns. And that's not just because of how it's written. It's got an unusual genre. It's called apocalyptic. That's challenging. But it's even more challenging for modern people because of the premise that's inherent in the book that evil is a real thing, that good and evil are objectively real. And that therefore the forces of evil and the persons engaged in evil are also engaged in something that is objectively real, for which they are 100% fully personally responsible. That's the premise of the book. That is not how the modern world tends to think. We live in a secular age that has bought into the notion that reality is what? It's what we human beings make it to be. That all of life is socially constructed that our notions of everything, of gender, marriage, morality, 
governance, laws, and rules, our notions of all of those things have nothing to do with a fixed objective reality, but that our notions are the product of what a society values. More specifically, they are the products of what powerfully placed persons in those societies value. And so far from being objective, each of these ways of seeing life and assigning values to life are what? They're, they're fluid, meaning that there is nothing fixed in our moral universe that says some things by definition are good and others are by definition not good, that some things must be a certain way to be good. Or maybe I can say a little more simply. It's the idea that all of our ideas of what is real are what we decide reality to be. That how we think of ourselves, how we think of each other, how we act toward each other is all malleable. And therefore, everything about people can be organized or changed based upon any manner or, or choosing that we have. And so evil in that understanding of the world is what? It's not a real thing. It's a social construction. It's a label that certain persons in certain places gave to certain things that they didn't like. And then those persons encoded their definitions into various social structures so that all the rest of us learn to see and define certain things as evil and to see and define certain other things as not evil. That's the world that you and I live in. And yet, as you think through this a little bit, you realize there's a number of problems with this approach. And the first is the most obvious, and that is, okay, I understand all of that, but who says so? Who says that there is no objective reality to this universe? Is it the social constructionists? But if they're right, if all reality is socially constructed, isn't their idea of a morally neutral universe also socially constructed? Isn't it simply a product of their own society? Isn't that idea that all moral reality is fluid? Isn't that idea constructed by the classes that they've paid to attend? The lectures that they've sat in, the notes they took, the tests they took, the books they read, the dinner conversations they had, haven't they been influenced by their own society to believe that there is no objective moral reality? If that's the case, if they are the product of a social construction, why should anyone from outside their society believe them? Let me try to say it a little more simply. When you say that nothing is objectively moral, when you say that there is no good or evil, no right or wrong built into the nature of this world, when you say that this world is inherently morally neutral, that's an objective claim about all of reality. It's a claim that says this is the way things are, not this is the way that my, my society tends to think about things. It's an objective claim when you say that nothing is objective. When someone says that, it's valid to ask why they're making that claim. Why they expect anyone to believe that their version of morality is real when they've just said that no versions are real. In that case, according to their own system, aren't they now guilty of an overreach of power on their part? 
an attempt to impose their belief in a non-objective morality onto people who believe in objective morality? In other words, their system is internally inconsistent. They are operating in a way that does not align with what they say they believe, which means they are now inconsistent trying to promote that belief. To say it more quickly, it's hypocritical. That's the first problem, the inconsistency. Second, you can't live in that world. It's impossible to live in that world. All you need is to hear the report that came out of Ukraine several weeks back on April 8th. A Russian rocket had been fired into a train station of women and children, and along the side of that rocket were spray-painted letters that read, For the Children. Now, whether you take that as meaning for the children of Ukraine or as revenge for the children that the Russians claim Ukrainians killed, either way, how do you frame that event as anything other than evil? How can you think of that as morally neutral? Whether the person who painted that delights in the idea of killing children or whether they think that killing women and children is the correct response for killing other children, either way, the only category for thinking about that is what? It's wrong. It's evil. And unless you have a category of things that are objectively evil, you can't make sense of why anyone would do that. That's the argument that Daniel Henninger makes in the Wall Street Journal in his article, The Devil Resurfaces in Ukraine. He ruminates there on how our modern Western society has tried to eliminate the idea of evil and along with it, personal responsibility for evil. But he argues that once you do that, you no longer have a means of understanding a senseless atrocity like grown adults justifying themselves for hurling missiles at a train station. All we need to do is take one look at that and we all say it's evil. It's objectively wrong for all people at all times in all places. And there is no way, other way to understand that. It is not a mere social construction that some people don't like and other people are okay with. No one gets to be okay with this because it's purely objectively wrong for everyone. And so the question in this world is not, is evil a real thing? The question is, what is the nature of evil? And how do you live in a world of evil, especially if evil gets aimed against you? Those questions go to the heart of what the book of Revelation is all about. Scripture has always affirmed evil is real and the devil as a real personal being, one who's invested in all that's evil. But Scripture also affirms that other beings join him in evil because they've turned away from God and God's goodness. Having done that, evil then finds a home within them, a home that takes them over and enslaves them. So both consciously and unconsciously, they then give themselves to a life that opposes God, a life that Scripture characterizes as evil. They're not as bad as they could be, but as Romans 8 verse 7 puts it, they live a life that is set on being hostile to God. And therefore, it's a life by extension that's hostile to everything that reminds them of God. 
which in some sense is what? It's, it, all of creation reminds you of God. God made it to reflect his glory. More narrowly, however, evil is hostile to human beings who are made in God's image, tries to eradicate that image. And especially evil is hostile to human beings who used to oppose God but who have now become his friends. And so down through the ages, God's people are specially targeted by evil and by all of its emissaries. The book of Revelation is written to help you figure out how do you go about dealing with that reality that you live in every day. Now, as you read through this book, you discover that it's a letter. It's written to the seven churches of Asia. These churches were already facing some persecution, a brush with evil, but they were about to face a whole lot more. Now, why seven? It's a little odd since we know that there were more than seven churches that existed at the time. Why only mention seven here? The author John writes in symbols. One of his favorite symbols is the number seven, and it's a shorthand. It's a stand-in for something being complete. And so you can think here back to the seven days of creation as a way of saying the completed creation process, the whole creation. So when John writes to seven churches, he means you to understand he's writing to the church, capital C, church, the whole church. You'll hear that language a little bit more as we read chapters two and three, the various letters. John is writing to the church, and he says, here's what it's going to be like for you to live in a world that is not fully redeemed, one that is still under the controlling power of evil, one that is still actively fighting against God and his people. John is helping you understand you can expect to be singled out for your allegiance to God, and then you can expect pressure to compromise that allegiance. That pressure takes two primary forms in the book of Revelation. It comes either as threat or as enticement. It comes as threat, comes as intimidation. People saying, essentially, conform yourself to what the rest of us are doing and thinking, or get ready to pay the consequences. It comes as threat. Or it comes as enticement, the allure of what this world has to offer. Join us in what we're doing, and look, life will be so good. So Christians, shift your allegiance a little bit, and look at all the suffering you'll miss, and look at all the good things you'll have. That's the danger that John sees for the church. And so he writes to warn her about it. Now those dangers are present for all of God's people, regardless of when or where they live. But those dangers present themselves in different ways in different times and places. For instance, at the end of the first century, when Revelation was written, Christians in the Roman Empire were on the margins of society, right on the edges, barely tolerated, often not. See, in Roman society, everybody was expected to worship the emperor as a god, to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. And that was much more than a religious activity. It was tied to you being a good citizen. So if you didn't participate, you were suspect, seen as disloyal to the empire, and you were ostracized, cut off from the rest of society. The only ones who were exempt from this kind of worship were the Jewish people. They were recognized legally as monotheists. 
And for a time, the Christians had been seen as kind of a sect within Judaism. And so they weren't required to engage in emperor worship. This recognition was ending. And so increasingly, there was no social space for them. Lots of pressure to conform, to at least give lip service to the emperor, or risk the wrath of the state. And the call of revelation to the church of that time was to be a faithful witness to Christ, both in what they said and in what they did, as they said and did it from the margins. This is important for the U.S. Because while Christianity eventually went mainstream in the Roman Empire, took a couple hundred years, but it went mainstream, we seem to be following the opposite trajectory here in the U.S. And frankly, we don't like it very much. Historically, there's been a significant overlap between what the church values and what our country values. And so we have found ourselves relatively at the heart of American culture. That overlap is lessening over time. Christianity looks like it has drifted outside of where mainstream America thinks and values and believes things should be. And one of the dangerous ways that large segments of the church have responded is by attempting to increase whatever overlap is remaining. We got used to that overlap as the U.S. church, and we liked it. It's not what our first century brothers and sisters had, but we did. Many within the church would like to have it back. And so there are some impulses within Christianity, began in the late 1900s, that want to remake the larger society along the lines of what is compatible with Christian morality, primarily through legal and political means. Not a drive to make disciples of Christ, but to make laws and norms conform to Christian practices, not to transform individuals, but to make a more moral culture. There are other impulses that argue that the church should reevaluate its theology on various issues, that it should bring its beliefs up to date, that it needs to learn from the modern world, and that it needs to alter what Christian discipleship means. Both of those attempts, radically different, both of those are trying to do what? They're trying to reduce the tension between the life and the beliefs that Christ calls us to with what our surrounding world values and believes. And what you have in Revelation is nothing like that. As we read, you will not hear Jesus calling his church to gain or regain any power and glory at the heart of any nation. You also won't hear him calling his church to blend into the nation, to adopt its viewpoint as our own. You also, however, will not hear him call us to ignore the world, just let it all go to hell as long as we're taking care of ourselves. Instead, his call is a lot more challenging. It's to hold faithfully to a God who comes to redeem his world, but who insists in doing so by calling evil evil and by calling us to recognize how we have individually and corporately participated in evil. And so our calling now as his followers, those whom he has redeemed from evil, is to care about his world as much as he does 
We are now to be faithful to him by calling our world to repent of its evil, by showing them the goodness of God who would come and rescue anyone who wants him, who will embrace his offer of help. Now to hear that call today and every day, we're going to need an awful lot of resources. I'm going to point you very quickly, I know this is a long introduction, I'm going to point you very quickly this morning to three that you find in this passage. If you are going to take God up on this call, you will need his viewpoint, his revelation, his scripture, and you will need to value that more than you value any other viewpoint. Second, you'll need confidence that God is presently, actively ruling his world, even when this world makes your life hard, even when it makes you suffer. And third, you'll need a personal experience of his transforming work in you. You'll need his viewpoint, confidence that he's in charge, and a personal experience of his transforming power. First, you need his viewpoint, which he intends to give you. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John is writing to you, to me, what God gave. God gave this first to Jesus, who then sent a messenger to give it to John. John is writing to you what God decided to give. And God gave what he gave. He gave his thoughts because he wanted his servants to know what must soon take place. Now notice, he's not coming saying, here's my word to a few specialized elites. Instead, his word comes to his servants, those who align with him, who love him, who join him in what he's doing. It's to all of his people. He gave his viewpoint, his perspective, his understanding of this world to you because he wants you to understand what's going on here in general and in your life in particular. God does not want you in the dark. He wants you to see the nature of reality so that you can live in it well. And you can only do that if he tells you what he already knows. Now this tells you something about his heart. It tells you about his care for you. He sees that you don't know what you don't know. And so he tells you what you could not know in any other way. And so as you read this book, you are presently experiencing his love for you, part of his heart for you. Now to underline that this is from God, John continues in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now prophecy does not simply mean things in the future. It means that this book is like what the Old Testament prophets wrote, like Gentry was talking with us about the book of Jeremiah. And you recognize that the prophets didn't simply tell you what the future would be like, but they did always tell you what God was thinking. And they told people how God wanted them to respond to what God was thinking. It's the same thing here. Don't think of Revelation as all about some distant future. Instead, it's prophecy in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets who would say, thus says the Lord. 
It's for thinking about life now, not looking for signs off in the distant future. You'll see that as God speaks directly to his churches in chapters 2 and 3 about the things that they were doing in the present moment, not about stuff coming in the future. You can also see that, however, when God says in verse 3 that the time is near, or as in verse 1, that these things must soon take place. If you flip from this first chapter to the very end of the book, chapter 22, verse 10, John is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And that whole phrase is really similar to something that you hear back in the book of Daniel. A lot of allusions, a lot of uh, references in Revelation to the Old Testament. This one is almost exactly what God has said to Daniel in chapter 12 of his book. Daniel was given a vision of the end times, but he was told to roll up the scroll and seal it until the time of the end. So get the contrast here. Similar language, contrast though. Daniel is told to keep things sealed until the time of the end. John is told, don't seal them. Leave them open. Which means that John is writing to you at the time of the end. So when John says near and soon, he means what? Now. Near and soon, based upon where Daniel was sitting. He's writing that these are God's words now for his people who live in the time of the end. And for those who take these words to heart, there's a blessing that comes along with them. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Probably means when God's people were gathered that this would be read to them. There's a blessing for reading it out loud in the congregation. There's a blessing for the congregation to hear it when they keep what is written, for using what they're hearing to understand the world around them and to understand what it means to live faithfully in that world, which means that the opposite is also true. If you don't read and understand this book, you won't have God's perspective on the world, which means that you won't be able to navigate living here well, which means that you won't help the church carry out our mission as the people of God. And like the seven churches that God is writing to, you might even influence God's people away from what God calls us to. Early church was tempted to compromise because of the voices in their society that tried to influence them, either to threaten or entice them away from following the Lord. You and I have the same temptation to listen daily to tons of voices that don't base their messaging on what God says or on how he sees the world. We have the same temptation to let their perspective replace God's. I once heard of a man who challenged a group of Christian psychologists. He wanted them to come to terms with what controlled their perspective on people and on helping people, and he was blunt, honestly a little nasty. He said to them, you have a graduate degree in psychology and a Sunday school degree in theology. That's harsh. But he was saying to them, look at how much time and energy you have put into each, your psychology and your theology, and think about which one is going to shape you most. Which one is going to control your thinking as you think about the other? Which one will control how you think about people? 
Now, I have no interest in being that harsh. I do want to be that direct. What is it that controls your thought patterns? Is it scripture? Or is it something else? What is it that controls what you think about? What you think is important? What you pay attention to? What controls what you ignore? What you don't pay attention to? Is it scripture? Or is it something else? Where does your vocabulary come from that you use to make sense of the world? Is it more influenced by Scripture, the themes of Scripture, or is it influenced by something else? Do you understand things like racism, justice, oppression from within a biblical worldview? The Bible says tons of things about each one of those. Or are you satisfied that this world talks about them in a way that's probably close enough to how God talks about them? When you think about the intersection of economics and social and personal responsibility, what words come to mind? Do you mostly think in terms of taxes, redistribution of wealth? Or do words like stewardship and sacrificial generosity also occur to you? Those are not the same. <laughs> they don't come from the same worldviews. And how do worldviews work? One tends to push the other one out to garner all your attention so that the other doesn't even occur to you. This is a huge temptation for us who live in the Philadelphia suburbs. A temptation to be experts in how to think like our society. We learn it in our formal education. We learn it in our continuing education classes. And we learn it informally on a daily basis. We pick up our phones and we check the news, we read blogs, watch videos when we have a few minutes to spare. Let me confess, I struggle with this. It is such a temptation for me to turn to my phone before I even get out of bed in the morning. It's embarrassing because I've thought about this for years, I've written about this, and I can so easily just automatically start scrolling through the news, feeding my heart, influencing my mind, on various people's perspectives, drinking in their worldview and their vocabulary. And I can go from article to article to article to article without once thinking, okay, wonder what God says about that. How does he think about the thing that I was just reading? Doesn't even occur to me sometimes. I've been relearning a good discipline lately. Frankly, it's something that I should have been practicing for a long time now. And that is that I want first to turn to Scripture in the morning before I hit the news. Before I hear from anyone else, I want God's perspective to be filtering into my mind and my heart. Or I can think about a friend of mine who said to me, why doesn't it occur to me when I have 10 minutes in the middle of the day to turn to Scripture? She said, I turn to everything else to the news, to a blog post, funny anecdote, something that showed up in, a, in my inbox. But I don't turn to Scripture. I could use those 10 minutes to read a chapter or several chapters of the Bible, and I haven't been. She's been working to change that, turn to Scripture instead. If you and I are going to live well in this world, we have to see it from God's perspective. He's taken the time and the trouble to give us his words, his thoughts on reality. We have to take him seriously. We have to take his love for us seriously. We have to read what he thinks is important for us to know. 
It's the first resource that he gives to us for living in this world. Second resource we need is confidence. Confidence that God is presently, actively ruling this world, which is part of what you find him tell you in Scripture. Tells you in verse 5 that he's the ruler of kings on earth. That there is no human being who rules independently or autonomously. Not one rules in a way that is outside of what God allows. Not even those who set themselves against God and against his people. Every ruler has a ruler. Jesus rules over them all. And he rules in such a way, verse 6, so that he will have glory and dominion forever and ever. So he rules now to ensure that he'll rule forever, so that he will have forever dominion. And he rules now in such a way that his eternal rule will bring him glory. It will not bring him shame, will not bring him dishonor. No one will rebuke him for how he ruled. No one will reproach him. He will not be embarrassed. He will have glory that you and I and all his people will look at him and we will praise him for the way that he ruled our lives and the life of all the rest of the planet. And to underline the present nature of that rule, God tells us, verse 8, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, which by implication means that if he anchors the endpoints of all that is, such that it starts with him and it ends with him, then guess what? He's in charge of the middle as well. That the middle cannot be anything other than what will produce the future that he's the end point of. He's even more explicit when he says this twice. Verses 4 and 8. That he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. That he sets the limits for everything else. That he is the one who was. That as far back as you can go, there he was. And as far forward as you can go, there he will be. He's present at the limits. Which means what? He's also present now. He's the one who is. Not one of the ones who is. The one who is. The one who's being here now is what determines that he will be the one to be here in the future as well. He's got that kind of power over everything else. He is presently, actively ruling his world to bring it to the place that he intends it to have. And that means that literally everything in your world is under the heading of his present active rule. We often give this a shorthand. We say that God is sovereign over everything. That doesn't mean that there is no sorrow or grief now. It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you now. It means that nothing that happens, including the bad things in your life, nothing is outside of his rulership. Nothing is outside of his ability to bring out of it what he intends in your life, which will bring glory to him that you will praise him for for eternity. This goes to another part of the heart of the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation is all about the problems of power. About who has ultimate power and how they use it. God tells you from the very beginning, reveals to you, that he has it all, regardless of what's happening in your life. That verse 8, he is the Almighty. 
That's what he says. That's what he believes. The question is, do you and I believe that? Do we believe that he rules right now in such a way that will bring him glory that we will praise him for forever? How can you tell if you believe that? How can you tell if his viewpoint, his perspective on who's in charge, how can you tell if that shapes your viewpoint? How can you tell if you think that he really is in charge, ruling over everything that you experience? Or if you believe that something else, someone else, has more power over you and what happens? How can you tell? Here's an easy litmus test. Check your emotions, especially when things are hard or when they're draining. When you're trying to follow the Lord and all you seem to experience is suffering, check your emotions. Ask yourself, where am I emotionally? Do you patiently persevere through hardships? Do you endure? Do you keep working hard at what God's given you to do right now because you know that he's in charge and therefore he's going to bring whatever outcome needs to be for life to be best? Do you believe that or do you find yourself demoralized, discouraged, working half-heartedly, quitting, giving up? Or think, think about it from a different direction. Do you have a deep underlying thankfulness, gratitude about all of life, a sense of joy that suffering just doesn't ever seem to fully erase? Do you find something in you that resonates with the Apostle Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we do not lose heart? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you have that sense that because God is in charge, that the affliction you deal with, the suffering, the persecution, do you have the sense that it's light, momentary, that God presently, actively rules over the afflictions in your life in such a way that will bring you an eternal weight of glory that you cannot begin to imagine. You need that sense if you're going to live here faithfully, especially if you are living on the margins of your society. That's why God makes sure to tell you in Scripture that he rules over everything. It's points one and two. Point three. Part of his ruling, then, is what? It's to transform you. So that you are no longer part of what opposes him. You're no longer part of evil. But he transforms you so that you now work alongside him. He takes part of his ruling power, verse 6, and makes us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now that's language that goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 19. It's what God said to the Israelites as he gathered them to himself at Mount Sinai, that they would be for him a kingdom of priests, that no longer would they be part of any other nation, no longer would any other nation's rules and laws and ways of life determine their own. They would be their own separate kingdom, run along the lines of what God thought was best. People would relate to each other and to the world that God made like God intended them to before sin and evil entered the world. High calling, 
And in order for them to have the ability to actually enter into that calling, he made them a kingdom of priests, meaning that each one of them would now have access to God. And that as priests, they wouldn't care simply about themselves, but they would intercede for others with God. That each of them would want as many other people to have access to God as well. He made them a kingdom of priests, and they dropped the ball badly. They weren't interested in pursuing him. They didn't make him a priority in their lives. They didn't care that the surrounding nations were godless. The access that they had to God was not enough to overcome their own evil. They did not live like a kingdom of priests. Which means that humility demands that the church recognize that left to ourselves, we could never overcome our evil either. We would end up doing exactly the same things. But God's done something amazing in the intervening time. He has overcome our evil for us. Verse 5. He loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now notice those verb tenses there. I don't do this with you all often. Notice the verb tenses there. He loves us. Present tense. His love has not stopped for you. Not stopped for me. Even if like the churches in Revelation we've compromised. Even if we've given in to being threatened or enticed, his love is still present tense. Hasn't stopped. What has stopped is our imprisonment. He has freed us, past tense. Freed us from what kept us from him. Freed us from our sins by his blood so that we could be a kingdom. Priests to him. God never let go of his desire to see this world filled with people living in a healthy relationship with him, in healthy relationships with each other, in a way that engages and uses this world like he intended it to be used. That was his intention in the Garden of Eden. It was his intention with the children of Israel. It is what the new creation will be. And it's now our calling as church to live faithfully, holding on to him in a world that is antagonistic. That's why he gives us his resources. It's so that the church, you and me, now listen to his voice more than we listen to any other voice. It's why we trust his present active rule in our lives. It's why we seek to extend his influence in every area of our lives. And it's why we care that others come to know him. Anything less than that kind of life is a refusal to take him or his resources seriously. It's a denial of his calling to us. It's a denial of his work on our behalf. It's a denial of him, which means it's what? It's a participation in evil. It's ignoring his voice, not wanting to hear what he has to say to us. It's believing no one's really in charge. Life's chaotic and random. You have to get your own back. It's living for whatever you can get out of life as if you're good now, was the universe's highest goal. And it's thinking that the people around you are pretty decent folk who don't need anyone to free them from evil or call them to something better. Those are evil ways to live that have nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing to do with his faithful witness to this God 
who's come to rescue a world and people who are trapped in evil. Those are evil ways to live that the church can easily fall into. But they are ways that you and I can now escape if we've fallen into them. You're no longer controlled by evil. You have been freed from it. And you're no longer enslaved by any of your past engagement with evil. That's why John writes this to the church. It's not so that you and I can see how far short we are and feel really bad about it. It's so that you and I can see what God has done for us. How much he loves us, present tense. How much he's done to make his way of life possible for us. Can we be tempted by the world around us? Of course. (laughs) Just like the first century church was. But if you have been set free from your past sins, you know something. You know that when you fall into faithfulness, it just, it doesn't fit anymore. It doesn't feel right. There's no lasting joy in it like there used to be. It's no longer who you are. It's no longer who you want to be. Because it's no longer who he has made you to be. He has freed you from your sins by his blood. So if you've fallen into any of those ways of thinking or living, take your priesthood and go back to him. Take seriously the priest that he's made you to be. You have incredible access to him. Go back to him and ask him to make what he did in you a reality in your present life. Tell him that you've gotten caught up again, but that you trust his death enough that it will set you free again. Tell him that you trust that his love for you has not grown cold, even if yours for him has. And tell him that you want him to use his ruling power to overcome your struggles, to overcome your faithlessness, so that you can now love him faithfully like he continues to love you. Take seriously what he's given you and go back to him. Lord Jesus, you have given us a calling that if it weren't for your resources would be well beyond us. Lord, we, however, are your people that you have changed and transformed and you've given us a glimmer of what our future is, what our present should be, what it can be. I ask, Lord, that you would use your incredible ruling power in, and, and, and take it and Work your words into our lives so that we believe you, so that we change in light and in line with what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.